Uh, good morning. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said he likes to see a man preach as if he were fighting bees, which not exactly my style, but I'll try to bring a little bit of energy this morning. I know how cold it is out there, and uh, I'm so genuinely honored to be here with you today. Um, I was actually at Crossroads' very first service uh, back in 2004, and now to be standing here uh, given the gift, the privilege of opening up God's word together and seeing what God has done and is continuing to do, uh, it's just amazing. Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote these words. The cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping whirring of their wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground and the house with the noise of a hailstorm. She wrote these words because in 1875, when she was like 12, 13 years old, growing up in the prairie of the Midwest, the United States had the largest locust swarm ever recorded in human history. 198,000 square miles devoured and destroyed. Uh, they estimate the swarm of locusts to be somewhere between four and a half trillion up to potentially 12 trillion grasshoppers. Uh, the grasshoppers themselves, they estimate would have weighed several million tons and they devoured everything. Farmers' crops, fabric, Clothing, uh, they estimate about $200 million in damages back in 1875 money. That's $4.5 trillion in damages and losses today. Uh, I want to show you a picture. It's not from 1875 because, well, they didn't have ways to take pictures back then. But this one's from 1915, actually in Jerusalem, Another locust plague that happened, but not nearly as bad as the one in 1875 in the U.S., and you can see what it does. Completely stripped everything bare. It's not a great picture because in 1915 they didn't have iPhones, but you get the picture of what it would have felt like, what it would have done, the devastation. Um, Wild West Magazine said this about the 1875 locust plague that hit about seven or eight of the Midwest states. It says the locusts soon scoured the, field of, the fields of crops, the trees of leaves, every blade of grass, the wool off sheep, the harnesses off horses, the paint off wagons, and the handles off pitchforks. The locusts, farmers grimly quipped, ate everything but the mortgage. Now, now when I first read that, I was like, well, that's hyperbole, right? It's like overspeak, he's trying to make a point. And then I was doing some more research on this 1875 plague, and I found out that what was said there was no joke. That stuff literally happened. The locusts ate wool off a of sheep. They didn't eat the sheep, okay? Don't worry. It wasn't like they was just eating off sheep. But they actually ate the bridles off of horses. I was like, okay, now, ain't no way they're eating wood like pitchfork handles. But it's true. They said a number of different uh, farm utility things uh, that had wooden handles were actually gnawed on, gnawed down. I don't think they were completely eradicated, but you got to just start to put yourself in that place, right? Because we don't really have anything in Michigan that we can compare it to. 
I mean, we get the snowstorm that'll knock out power. Maybe like you lose all the food in your fridge, you know, because it's gone bad for, you know, six, seven days. Like that's about as bad as it. Like we don't even live in, in, in the South where like they get them hurricanes in and the flooding and it wrecks things for a few months. I mean, that's bad enough, but this would have devastated like for potential years to come. Our text today is out of the book of Joel. If you have your Bibles, you can start looking for it. <laughs> Probably going to take you a while. It's okay. Open up to the table of contents, find the page. You can open up there, or if you're even smarter, pull out your phone and just type it in that way. We are in a series on the minor prophets. Rod kicked it off last week. I told Rob, I was like, uh, Rod, I just said Rob. I knew I was going to do that. Sorry, Rod, wherever you're at. I told Rod, I was like, bro, like, I'm super, like, honored and humbled that you'd invite me to open up the word, uh, but next time, bro, don't invite me during a Minor Prophet series. Like, give me, like, a, you know, like a better, like a softball, man. This is, like, some crazy curve you threw at me, but I'm excited about it, even though it's not the book of Jonah, because if it was the book of Jonah, friends, like, you would have been so impressed with my balloon animals. Like, I'm telling you, like, <laughs> it would have blown your mind. But with the book of Joel, we actually open up uh, to the text in chapter one. Now, before I dive in, though, like I want to tell you a few things that we know and a few things that we don't know, all right? When it comes to this particular book, there's actually more we don't know than we do know. We, we don't know who Joel is, all right? Joel is a pretty common name back then. It's kind of like being named John today, okay? Sorry, John's of Crossroads. Pethuel, his dad, also a common name, not so common today, but would have been a common. So we don't know who he was. Uh, we don't know if he was one of, he could be one of the earliest uh, prophets to write. He also could be one of the latest prophets to write. We're not exactly sure. Uh, we also don't even know what was going on in Israel at the time for God to send the plague. And the plague of locusts that we're about to read about don't simply tell us the whole story anyway. It's actually a way that God is looking to get their attention and we're not exactly sure what was going on for God to want to do this. A couple things that we do know, uh, we're fairly confident that he writes the book from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we think it's probably a later time frame, maybe like 400 BC, 450 BC. But the only reason we think that is because it seems as though he's writing only to the nation of Judah, which if you remember from last week, Rod explained how the nation had been split in two at some point, all right? The northern nation was called Israel. That was the 10 northern tribes. The southern nation was called Judah. It was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem was in the southern nation. And so we think that's where he's writing from and that's who he's writing to. And so we think it's probably one of the later ones, but we're not 100% sure. We do know that there was a locust plague that was sent and that it was sent by God. And we do know that God was using it to call his people back to him. Joel chapter one, starting in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. It's all gone. 
All right, we don't know what the great locust and the young locust and the other locusts and the, we're not exactly sure what he was trying to describe with that. Most likely, as he writes and often uh, does in any of the minor prophets, there's lots of poetry and hyperbole that's used. His point is that it's gone, like all of it. In fact, if we were to continue to read, uh, we would find that the oil was gone. The olive trees were stripped bare. Uh, In fact, it says that, that they even ate the bark off the trees and they were left white in the sun. The fruit is gone, the wheat is gone, the wine is gone. Even the seed to plant next year's harvest is gone. It's crazy because uh, this is something, again, that in our culture we don't fully know how to grasp or put our minds around. And, And I don't even have a really good way to explain it, but they couldn't even offer sacrifices at the temple anymore. There was nothing to to offer to God. And for for an Israelite, that was shockingly painful. It was as if God had turned his back on the people and the people couldn't even offer sacrifices to like re-engage with him. It was was as if like night had come and there was no dawn. And God is trying to grab their attention. Have you ever had like a plague of locusts in your life? Not like legit, like grasshoppers, like in your house eating stuff, but God allows something or more likely God brings something into your life to devastate. Now, this is one of the hard things about the minor prophets. Rod even talked about this last week, right? Uh, A big reason that we rarely engage in a series in the minor prophets because it just feels like, as Rod said, God keeps pulling out a two-by-four and just pummeling his people with it. And God's doing that here. But God never punishes for punitive reasons. He always punishes for restorative reasons. And so I want to ask you again, has God ever brought a plague of locusts into your life? Uh, Maybe life got so hard that you just kind of wanted to flee the situation, right? Maybe you question God's goodness or his existence at all. Maybe you wondered if you'd even survive. Uh, Maybe you're sitting here this morning with all those questions, a relationship that's gone south, son or daughter that's lost, maybe a dream or a desire that you had that's maybe now gone, and you're asking the question, God, what's up, where are you? I feel devastated, I feel alone, I feel as though there's no tomorrow, and I'm just telling you, like, I've had locust plagues. In fact, me being here today is actually connected to a locust plague that God brought into my life. It's a bit of a winding story, but uh, I told you I was actually here back in 04. Well, not here because it wasn't here. It was over at Walker Charter in the gymnasium. And uh, I feel like my wife and I had a very, very small part in seeing Crossroads planted. I was on staff at Calvary, uh, went there back in 2001. Uh, back in 03, this cat from Chicago shows up. Rod Van Dutchema. 
And uh, I was like, he's home, you know, like, welcome back, brother. And uh, Michael had been a friend of mine, and he and Rod had this dream to plant this church crossroads, and I remember just really liking Rod a lot. We hung out, got to know him over the about nine months that they officed out of Calvary before Crossroads was launched, and because we loved them and were excited about the vision that God had given to them, we're like, hey, we want to go and be a part of this. We want to encourage them if we could, and, and so we were there that first Sunday, and it was amazing. It was super cool to see and watch, and there's probably some of you in here that were there as well on that very first Sunday, but the vast majority of you were not, right, because of what God's done, move through his spirit that he continues to do to transform people through the life of this church. Well, uh, you guys don't even realize it, but you actually had a part in the starting of local church. I know you're like, man, that's a weird name. Yes, it's a weird name. We know. We get it. But we met here in this building on Sunday nights every other week for about six months where we started to pray and worship together as a launch team. And Crossroads said to us, like, what do you need? Like, we want to help you. Now, we already had a sending church, Central Wesleyan in Holland. But Crossroads said, like, we want to be one of your aunties, all right? You got a mother, like, we get it, and you are. You're like one of our aunts, okay? There's a few churches here in GR that said, we want to be an aunt to you. Like, we want to help you all. We want to support you. Crossroads was huge for us. Calvary Church, who planted Crossroads and also where I had been on staff for 11 years, was helpful to us. They're like one of our aunties. Uh, Mars Hill gave us all of our chairs. We consider them one of our aunties. Another young church plant called Redemption uh, wanted to bless us. And so even though they were only like two years ahead of us, they took up an offering and gave us 1500 bucks uh, within our first couple of months to help with some children's ministry needs. We had. Like, we've got a bunch of aunties, and we love that. But you guys were a big role in that. You might not even know it, but the way that you give, the way that you serve, the way that you allow God to speak to you and are willing to be obedient, because of that, you had a hand in launching us. You might not have even known it. And yet you did. And part of that is kind of how I wound up getting to come and share with you today. But it actually goes back to a season of locusts. You see, I had been at Calvary for 11 years, and after 11 years, uh, we just sensed that God was calling us to serve another church out on the lakeshore. God had been speaking some things for uh, about a year and a half, actually. Uh, Jim Samer, who's the pastor over at Calvary, knew about it, had been praying with us. God had given me some very specific things. We felt like our time, not that our time was coming to an end, because I just I loved every single day I worked at that church, uh, but we Felt like God was saying, hey, I've got something else. And so as we prayed about that, I felt like God say, uh, I know where you're at. I'll come find you when I'm ready. And I'm like, all right, Lord, that's cool. But like, how's the other churches going to know? <laughs> like, shouldn't I put my resume in here? Or that about that job? Like, you know, I'll give a little helping hand. You know, I got to help you out, Lord. And God was like, just shut up and I'll get you when I'm ready. And I was like, all right, fine. So uh, a couple things happened. And uh, out of the blue, I get a call from this church. Now, my right-hand guy that I had served with for the last seven years, basically he did all the work and I got all the glory. It was a great gig, okay? But he had decided that God was calling him uh, to a particular church out on the lake shore. And so he was putting his resume. I'm like, man, that stinks because I know he's going to probably get the job. He's super talented, super gifted. Then I'm going to be by myself. And so then I get a call from that church. And I'm assuming when the call comes, 
All right, uh, I'm one of his references. They're probably calling about that. Well, it turns out they weren't. And something inside my heart knew that they weren't. They were calling to say, hey, hey would you consider coming and being our teaching pastor? I'm like, this is crazy. Because the weird thing is, is that another guy that uh, both Jordan, my right-hand guy, and I had worked with, he had gone on staff at that church like a year and a half earlier. And we had we're all worked together for like four years. Then Jordan got hired out there, and a month later, I was hired. And then within three months uh, of me coming, uh, some things went down. But before I get there, let me explain what happened in the interview process. You see, they were looking for a teaching pastor. I was like, okay, teaching pastor, lead pastor, senior pastor, different names for the same thing. Because they didn't have a senior pastor at the time. Their senior pastor of 11 years who had done great things to the church, God had called him to another ministry. It's a great move and... So I had the first interview, and I realized, no teaching pastor, they just want a teaching pastor. And then they said, sometime in the future, we don't know when, we're going to hire a senior pastor. I was like, all right, well, second interview, I'm with the elders, and I say to them, like, hey, I think I'm an okay teacher, but honestly, like, I've just been teaching, like, high school kids, so we're both about to find out how this is going to go down, okay? Uh, but I think I'm a better leader than I am teacher, and quite honestly, I just have a sense that God maybe asking about this other position that you don't want to hire yet. And then I did this, no joke, in the interview. Because I thought I had just blown the whole thing up. Thankfully, they all laughed in that moment. And we both said, hey, uh, you know what? Um, God's calling me to this. It's not what I thought, but I know he's calling me. And so if you'll have me, we want to come. And they said, we believe the same thing. And so I came. And then God started doing all kinds of things. Because within three months... The entire executive team, except for one other person, was asked to step down. Nothing to do with me. It was all stuff that had happened before I ever got there, some things that the elders felt like needed to happen. But all of a sudden now, I'm the teaching pastor, but I'm also leading staff, and I'm also setting vision. And now uh, the guy, my right-hand guy, Jordan, has been elevated to be the worship pastor and oversee worship ministry for the whole church. And this other guy that I know, he, he's actually now become the family ministries pastor and kind of been elevated. And I'm like, God's setting the table. Like, this is so obvious, God's setting the table, right? Like, everybody can see it. I'm supposed to be the next senior pastor. And about a year in, things are going well, and I'm excited. And, and they come and they say, we think it's time to start a search for a senior pastor. And I'm like, Bing, 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 you know? And uh, I say, okay, that's great. Now, the whole time I'm expecting, right? I, I, even, I even feel like God has maybe spoken to me about this. And as they start praying, a month goes by, and two months, and three months, and four months, and um, they don't have any good candidates at that point. And, and I'm interacting with the elders, so I know that, but I'm purposely not putting in my own resume, because I'm like, hey, I'm here. Like, they're going to know. God's going to tell them, right? And then six months in, they come to me and they say, we've, we've got a guy that, that we think might be the senior pastor, and, and my heart sinks. And the crazy thing is, is um, he was really good. He was older than me, had more experience than me, had a great vision for the church. Uh, and, and more than that, God called him. Uh, it's really crazy when I say it out loud because it, 
well, it's just flat out embarrassing. But, but I used to think I didn't struggle with pride, okay? I know, as soon as you say it out loud like that, like, it's like, oh my goodness, bro, really? Um, but I used to think that that just wasn't really my, my, my issue, okay? Because, like, I grew up in Flint. Like, I wasn't a kid you'd have, like, bet on when I was in middle school, okay? Like, you wouldn't have been like, well, he's going somewhere, all right? So everything that God's ever given me, like, I, I, I've always recognize that it's only his grace. It's, it, it, God has given me any gifts that I have. It's not because of how great I am or how awesome I am. But here's the thing, though. Uh, because God kept allowing me and placing me in positions of leadership, when you're at the top, you don't have to work at being humble. Like Being humble is easy when you're at the top, right? Uh, you stop practicing it. Not on purpose. You, you just, just as easy. But, but the problem is when you stop practicing something, you don't begin to realize how that's actually being lost in your life. You don't realize all the ways that you start to feel entitled to things and about things. And, and so when they hired a new senior pastor and he came in, I had to step back from all the things that I thought I was supposed to do, all the things that I enjoyed doing, all the things I felt called to do, all the things that I felt like I was good at doing. He had a vision, and it wasn't mine. He decided what we were going to teach, not me. He decided how often I was going to teach, not me. He led the staff, not me. And it was in that moment that I realized that a weed had grown up in my heart, and it was beginning to devour all of the wonderful fruit that God had been producing through the gifts that he had given me, that weed sounded a lot like pride, it had the tentacles that looked a lot like envy, and, uh, and I didn't know what to do about it. Uh, I was great publicly, like I was fine, like I supported him publicly, I was for him, anything that he asked me to do, I was doing, but inside I was dying. I was not healthy. I was not giving him my heart, which actually meant that I wasn't giving God my heart, right? Because God had called him to that place. I wasn't mad at him. I was really mad at God, and I was telling God, who do you think you are taking away from me what I think is rightfully mine, what I think I'm good at, what I think I'm ready for? Now, now I didn't realize that I was saying that to God, because... Uh, I thought I was just saying it inside to the elders or to the senior pastor, but really that's who I was speaking to. And so God sent a plague of locusts. And it was painful. After about a year working together, senior pastor came to me along with the newly hired executive pastor, and they just said, hey man, like, we don't think this is probably the long-term place. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. And so they said, you got a place here uh, as long as you need. Um, just go ahead and start looking. And, you know, so I did. And a month, two months, and three months, and four months went by. And some things that we thought God was calling us to, he wasn't calling us to. And some things that he told us we were supposed to say no to. Some things that he said no to for us. And six months in, I'm starting to probably get more poisonous inside than I even recognize. 
And they have to come back to me and say, look, we can't keep doing this forever. Like, we need a cutoff. And they were right, 100% right. And it was the first time in my life since college that I didn't have a full-time job. First time in my life since I was 14 years old that I didn't have any job at all. And I've got a wife and four kids and a mortgage. And I'm asking God, like, what is up? Where, where is the money going to come from to pay my bills? God, what am I going to do in this season? You see, God smacked me upside the face because he needed to get my attention. That, that's exactly why he did it. So what do we do when the locusts have stripped us bare? What, what do we do when the locusts have stripped us bare? Uh, let's turn to Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, and I want to read this to you. This is exactly what the people wanted to know. What are we supposed to do? And Joel comes to them and he says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart not your garments. Like, don't make it an outward show. Like, give me what's really inside. I don't care how ugly it is, where it's taken you. Rend your heart open. Rip it open so that I can go inside and take out the garbage and actually do something beautiful. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. He's like, look, turn back to God. You want to know what to do when the locusts come? When you're not sure where tomorrow is going to come from, what it's going to look like? He says, turn back to God. Turn your face back towards him. And then he begins to explain to us what kind of a God he's like. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. And he's abounding in love. He is a generous giver of blessings. He says, who knows? Maybe he'll relent. Maybe, maybe he'll give us what we need so that we can actually start the sacrificial system again. Locusts come for a lot of different reasons, don't they? Right? Sometimes our sin brings them, right? things that we've done. And God has to say, hey, I, I, I got to bring some locusts in because you got some weeds growing and I need to eat them weeds up. No, the problem with locusts is they eat up everything. But God does it to get our attention and sometimes it's because of our own sin. But let's be honest, sometimes it's not because of something we did, it's because of something that somebody else did to us. And sometimes it's not even that easy. So sometimes it's just the very fact that we live in a sin-drenched world and that affects and infects everything, right? And those locusts come into our life and we wonder, God, okay, what's up? Where are you at? Uh, there's a guy, his name is Dr. Paul Brand. Uh, Dr. Brand was a medical doctor, got his, uh, got his license to practice, I think in like the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, he grew up in India because his parents were missionaries. Uh, he wound up uh, becoming a world-renowned uh, surgeon, uh, pioneered a whole bunch of different techniques, but his main focus was with people with Hansen's disease, or leprosy, commonly known as. And so God called him back to India, and he actually learned some things about leprosy. Up until that time, they actually believed that the disease somehow was what rotted your flesh away, and that's why people would become disfigured and eventually ultimately die from the disease. And what he found is it's not the disease that rots your flesh away. What it actually does is it removes pain receptors, so that you can no longer experience pain. And so uh, you, 
would step on a rusty nail, but you wouldn't know that you stepped on a rusty nail. And so then you would get infected, and that's actually the issue. Dr. Brand realized that pain is actually a gift. In fact, he wrote a book with Philip Yancey called The Gift of Pain, and in that he says this. He says, pain is not the enemy, but the loyal scout announcing the enemy. Pain truly is the gift nobody wants. Pain is not the enemy. It is the loyal scout announcing the enemy. You see, when God brings locusts into our lives, it's not simply because he's angry and he's so excited to be able to smack us with the two by four, right? He wants to bring pain into our lives. Why? So that we will stop and take notice of where we are, turn to him to experience the life that we only can find within Jesus. Nobody likes pain, but like, I'm super grateful for it, right? Because if I touch a hot stove and I get some pain on the tips of my fingers, I know to pull that thing back, right? If I didn't have that, I would just rest it right on there and burn my hand off. Look, pain is an important thing. Pain matters, and God uses pain. It's actually a gift God has given to the human body, to the humankind, you and I. It's an important gift and one that he likes to use. Now, the entire book of Joel hinges on verse 18. Because the people actually listen to what God says, right? Pain often makes us listen. In fact, I've heard one person say, God whispers to us in our pleasure and shouts to us in our pain. The people hear it. And if you were to read verse 19, you would see that the Lord replies to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. It's like, look, you turn back to me and I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to make things grow again. New wine, oil, grain. You see, God removes the locusts and he brings the rain that's necessary for all these things to grow again. Things that they thought were lost, things that they didn't even think could come back again. You see, that's what God does. God resurrects, restores, redeems things that you think are beyond hope. A lot of times when we read the Minor Prophets, like, we, we get an image of a God who's just kind of angry and rough, and quite honestly, we have a hard time knowing how to relate to that God, right? Because we often see the pain that he brings as being punitive. But God never brings pain as a form simply of punishment. It's always intended to restore us. Joel 2.25, he says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You've probably heard that before, haven't you? I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent them on. He's like, remember all them locusts I was talking about? Like, I'm going to repay you everything they ate. I'm going I'm to give it back to you. But God doesn't just give it back what they had. Look what he says. You're going to have plenty to eat until you're full. And you'll praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Verse 27, he says, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. That that word Lord there, uh, in most of your Bibles, my guess is that it's capitalized, but like it's capitalized small, all right? You're like, that's kind of weird. You ever notice that? Rod's probably taught y'all because he's a good Bible teacher. But if, if you haven't heard this, now you can understand. Every time you see that, that's actually the name Yahweh. That's God's personal name. 
It's his personal name that he gave to Israel. He says, you can know me. And the name Yahweh is actually spoken about 39 times in the book of Joel. You see, even though there's pain, God says, look, I am your personal God. I'm, I'm the God who has come to you. I'm not far off. And if you struggle with, like, who is this father? Because maybe you didn't have a good father growing up, right? I wish it was the case that all of us had, like, amazing fathers who were never hard on us or difficult. And so, because we often get our understanding and our view of who God is based upon our father. All the dads are like, oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, oh, snap. That's right. We got some work to do. Jesus helps us understand who our father is, though what he's actually like. Uh, and he does so in, in Luke 15. And we're going to read that in a minute, but it's a story that you've probably heard a hundred times before. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's this young cat. He's probably in his like, late teens, early 20s. And he comes to his dad, and he's like, yo, dad, I'm kind of sick of like, the rules that you guys have been laying out. Like, I'm ready to handle my own business. And so uh, I'd like my share of the inheritance now, please. Which was a not-so-subtle way of saying, dad, I wish you were dead which is incredibly arrogant, uh, completely shameful for a son to say that to his father, would have been unbelievably embarrassing in the community. And what was even crazier is his dad said, okay. I mean, his dad would have literally had to go and sell parts of the family's property to be able to raise the funds to be able to give to his imbecile son who's shaming him in front of everybody and and yet he does it, and, and the son gets the money, and he's like, peace. Text says he goes out to a foreign land, a land far away, and your boy lives it up, like straight wiling, all right? Like he's dropping cash on like fast women and fast chariots and like Gucci robes, and like he's got it all, man, and he's living the high life, okay? And the money starts to run out, though. And as the money runs out, so do the friends. They're like, oh, he's actually not very cool without his money, and then a famine hits, and he's got nothing. And he's a foreigner in a strange land, and, 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 and nobody's willing to give him anything, and the only thing that he can do is find a job feeding pigs, which Jesus knew when he said that. People would be like, oh, dang. Like the worst thing you could do as a Jewish man, feeding pigs, wishing you could eat what they were eating. You can't even eat what pigs eat. And the text says, and then he came to his senses and thought, I will return to my dad and I will ask him, I will ask him if he'll just make me like one of the servants. In fact, he concocts a plan. He's like, I'm going to go to my dad and, and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Like, don't even call me son. Like, I get it. I know what I've done. But I know that your servants, they, they, they have food on their plates. And, 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 and could you just make me like one of them so that I can, so that I can just have food to eat? And, and we pick up the text, Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and turned toward his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to him threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but check out what happens. He can't even finish what he intended to say because daddy cuts him off. 
He says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. You ever wonder what kind of a God God is? What kind of a father he is? When God brings pain into our lives, it's not simply to hurt us. It's not because he gets some sort of sick joy out of seeing his people squirm. It's because he knows that the place that we find blessing is in his presence. That's where we find blessing. It's in his presence. And that's the kind of father that he is. He brings pain so we turn back to him. And when we turn to him, he's looking. I love that in the text. He's scouring the horizon, just waiting for his daughter, for his son to turn back to him. And when we do that, he comes running like a Jewish man didn't run back then, okay? You don't hike up your robes and start running like you walk stately and slowly. But he doesn't care. He's like, oh, my son, right? Like he's after it. Why? Because that's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of God that he was for Israel. It's the kind of God that he is for us today. He's a God who wants to restore and redeem, but it requires that we turn. We read in Joel chapter 3, verse 18. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the Acacias. Do you see the, the picture of God's just overflowing, generous love? And that's what God did for me. I had six months without a full-time job, wondering what God was up to, what he was going to do. But as I turned towards him, confessed what I was and what I was not, he lavished his love on me because that's the kind of father he is. And the whole winding road thing meant that six months later, Central Wesleyan out in Holland said, hey, we believe God's laid a vision on our hearts to plant churches and we want to be a, a family of kingdom-minded, missionally generous churches. And, and, and they said, would you come and be that person that we want to send out? And that's exactly what I had really been hoping God would allow me to do, but I wasn't sure if it would ever come to fruition. And I thought it was a little crazy anyway because I'm like 40 at that time and I'm like, Lord, like, Church planting, that's like a young man's game. Like, you got to be a little stupid to do that, okay? Like, I should know better by now, but God said, hey, I know what I'm up to. I know what I'm doing. And I think I have the best job in the world. And I love it. And I love the fact that I get to pastor that church and see life transformation continue to happen. People's lives that are far from God. People that needed to re-engage with God. And the fact that I get to do that as a part of a church team in GR with awesome churches like Crossroads and Calvary and Keystone and Ada and Cascade Fellowship and Redemption and I could just keep listing them all, right? Because we're all on the same team together. We wanna see the work of God go forth that it would be in Grand Rapids as it is in heaven. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the Father we serve. Now today, uh, I, I told God, I was like, God, I, I'm not gonna preach to a congregation. I'm gonna preach to an individual. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if like you're like, that message was for me. The locusts have eaten everything and I don't know what to do. I don't know what the future holds. I'm wondering where God is and maybe God is saying to you, hey, I need you to turn towards me today. 
So the band's gonna come up right now and we're gonna sing uh, our final two songs. I think that's like your normal gig, right? You normally do that. And here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna invite any of you that say, I, that's, today was for me and I'm, I'm, I'm turning back. Uh, I'm gonna invite you to do something that Will told me last night you never do. So after today, you can, can't say never anymore. Uh, it's not an altar call per se, all right? But I'm gonna ask you to come forward. I'm gonna ask you to come forward today as a display of your decision to turn your face towards God, all right? You don't have to have like done some terrible thing, like, all right, you're like, I don't think anybody here killed somebody last week, okay? If you did, you should come forward, but I, I don't think, <laughs> like that's not what I'm talking about, okay? It could be something small, could be something big, but today you're gonna say, God, I'm tur I turn my face towards you because I know that's in your presence, that's where blessing is found. And so I'm gonna invite Anybody that needs to, you can come and kneel, you can come and sit, you can hang out at the front right here, you can stand and, 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 and sing, whatever you need to do, this is an opportunity for you to just do some business with God. Father, you're a good, good father. A God who loves us, a God who is not afraid to bring pain into our lives, but you never do it simply to punish us, you do it to restore us. And so this morning, Jesus, we turn our eyes towards you, we turn our faces back towards you, Jesus, we want to be in your presence. And so for anybody that needs to this morning, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up as we sing. And if that's you this morning, you need to slip out, move up, move forward. Come and do that. I'm going to be up here as well. Let's worship. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus.